It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for joining me again here on Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, so we are live. Uh, two uh, great guests, uh, one who's a, uh, a returning player to the show uh, here in just a few moments, and we'll, we'll get to our guests. Uh, in, in just ca- case this is the first time you happen to be tuning in, or maybe it's been a while, kind of give you a little recap, a little refresher on, you know, why do we have this show and what are we trying to do here? You know, the, the show's really kind of come out of my uh, experience of meeting a lot of really cool people and uh, see, kind of seeking out some cool people on LinkedIn and at shows and, you know, Anyone who has something important to say or is uh, maybe kind of challenging uh, the status quo or has an opinion on something around talent, right, leadership, talent, HR, uh, and how we manage ourselves and how we manage our people um, is really uh, of interest to me. So this show is really designed to, you know, let us have that conversation out into the public, and hopefully uh, those of you who are tuning in enjoy the conversation and uh, also hoping that you guys will jump in and be a part of the conversation. So if you're listening live, we'd love to have you send questions and comments. Uh, we are live tweeting this as we go along, so you can pop on Twitter and send your comments to at g 2 Use the hashtag Talent Talk. Um, if it's after the fact, that's okay. We'd love to still get your questions and comments and have that conversation go well after the live show is gone and we turn into a podcast. So. Um, you know, speaking of podcasts, we, we do do that on iTunes. We also can be heard on iHeartRadio. Uh, over 10,000 of you a day are coming in, downloading one of those podcasts and listening to a show. And uh, really just it still amazes me how many people are, are coming in and, and interacting with us. And we really appreciate everyone's support uh, and you getting the message out and spreading um, really my guests' great ideas. So uh, let's go ahead and get to my guests here today. Uh, my first guest will be William Tincup, the president of Recruiting Daily. Uh, he's also a fellow podcaster, if I remember correctly. And then my second guest will be uh, Ron Mester, the CEO of Brightfield Strategies. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, bring Mr. Tincup in. Uh, welcome back to the show. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what they should know, and then what you've been up to in the world of HR since we talked last. <laughs> You know, I, I'm a curious, I guess I'm a curious guy because uh, I've been studying the intersection of HR and recruiting and technology for a long time now, and I'm not bored by it. Uh, I love HR. I love the hope uh, that comes from HR, even though they know the really dark things that happen or potentially can happen inside of a company. They're, they're still very hopeful people. Uh, and recruiters, recruiters are... Um, just wonderful people to interact with. So uh, I kind of, I kind of at that intersection point. I love technology companies. 
love technology companies that are trying to solve, you know, either really, really tiny problems or really huge problems. Uh, so everyone from your, you know, oracles and SAPs and workdays all the way down to a tiny fitness app or a wellness app for, you know, in the country of Spain. Um, so I've been uh, studying that area for, um, gosh, I think it's 17 years or so. Uh, so a long time, long enough to, long enough to know better. Um, but I've done it from a different, a couple different vantage points. Uh, one from a marketing agency, two from a consultant from perspective, three from a market research, and now uh, with recruiting daily for the last two years from a media perspective, uh, which is quite different. So I speak a lot uh, at, at different conferences and whatnot. I write a lot, uh, and I did. You're right. I did have a podcast for five years. Um, and um, and so I, I kind of miss it on some some occasions, but I don't miss the logistics. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I'm just glad to be here. So thanks, <laughs> thanks okay. for having me, brother. I'm glad you can uh, come back and uh, be back in the podcast world. I know they, I, I certainly empathize with some of the things you said there. And one of the challenges I always find is you know we had this podcast. Ours is very static on the date and time that it occurs and. You know, as you get these speaking gigs or going out to do things to help clients, um, sometimes those two things don't intersect very well. But uh, we usually seem to work right. it out okay. Well, you, know, you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the big company stuff. We also talked about the little things, the little companies that are maybe probably having huge impacts into very small niche and small areas. And you know, that's kind of an area that you kind of devote some time into supporting these startups as an advisor. What are some of the things uh, that these startups and entrepreneurs are looking for from you to really advise them on to help them get going. You know, what, what, what sort of the business are you kind of intersecting with? Sure, sure. So I advise about twenty-ish recruiting and HR startups uh, all across, kind of the uh, from sourcing now placement, if you will, hire to retire. And uh, the way that I interact with them and the way they interact with me is all different. So I can tell you that there's never kind of one model. Uh, but the three things that for me to say yes. And it'd be interesting to kind of get the entrepreneur perspective of this. But for me to say yes, I have to really kind of love the entrepreneur uh, to start with. I just kind of like believe in her or him and just kind of like see myself doing stuff with this person for a long time. So that's one. If, they, if, that goes, if it goes further than that, then I look at the technology. And because I do 20, 25 demos a week, I see a lot of technology. This doesn't necessarily I'm a tech, doesn't mean I'm a technologist or software engineer. It just means that... Uh, visually, I have an acuity uh, about software, and specifically HR and recruit software. So, um, so the second thing I, I you know, with this test, if you will, is is uh, I look at software and I, I probe and ask them a bunch of tough questions about the software that they built. And if we pass that test, then third is uh, the market opportunity. So we can get past one and two, but if I don't see the market opportunity, I remember uh, Regis, who's a, a partner at Mayfield. He told me one time when I had a call with him 100 years ago, he said, I've got to see a pathway to a billion dollars. Now, it, it might not ever be a billion-dollar company, but I've just got to visualize a pathway. And it always stuck with me. First of all, I, you know, that's just way, way, way too, you know, I, I could never visualize something like that. But I've got to be able to visualize the market accepting the product in some way or another. Um, because I have a marketing background, a lot of it starts with kind of go-to-market strategy. How do we, you know, how do we get people to pay attention to this product in a very noisy uh, universe? You know, over 22,000 HR recruiting products in the world. 
uh, how do we get people to pay attention to you know this thing? And so we start there, generally speaking, um, and then it goes all over the place. Uh, sometimes into funding, sometimes into partnerships. Uh, occasionally, they need just you know they don't even need any of that other stuff. They need people to uh, let's say they've come out of alpha and they're in beta, and they need you know a hundred beta clients. Right. So we'll spend time there. Uh, but really, it's kind of a I've got I actually built something because I had questions from entrepreneurs you know so many times in a row where I'm like you know what let me just here's the 15 things I'm good at. <laughs> you know, that's a little arrogant, but but here's the right. main thing. That, right. you know, I think I can do okay. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's really important to being honest. Saying, hey, let's, listen, instead of us trying to figure this out, here, here's the five things or the 15 things or whatever it is that I'm good at, and you tell me where you need help. Um, that's right. You know, you know, I loved. Um, we probably could take your your answer there to my question and spend three hours on the things that you talked about. But the one that I wanted to kind of really point out was where you started. And we've had some really uh, smart people, so I certainly put you in that category. Come on this show and say something very similar. And I I use this this little example to phrase it up, which is um, often people are betting on the jockey and not the horse, right? So they're they're going after. Yeah. Do you like that entrepreneur? Do you think that they can really do what they say they can do, and can you work with them? And and I often see how people completely throw that out. They don't even think about that. They think, I have the best idea in the world, or I'm going to make you all this money, and nobody wants to work with you because <laughs> they can't see themselves, right. you know, with you as that person. Uh, Shark Tank's that way. There's lots, lots, of, lots of examples yeah. out there. Um, how often do you think that that is a factor compared to go-to-market strategies and can you make a billion dollars and things like that? So I think it's a hard sciences, all sciences thing. So I think the people of the hard sciences, and then let's just kind of stem, people that come from math and technology, engineering, uh, et cetera, science, I think they think it's about the best product. So I think they, they fall into a category of men and women that come from that area, uh, from that, that, that background. I think they think it's about making the best product. And I think you have on the soft sciences people, you have all the artists and liberal arts people and philosophers and you know, English majors and whatnot. I think they think it's about the kind of the emotional connection. It's not about the product. It's about the people. It's about the it's, – it's actually, you know, if you were to say uh, we have the best product, well, you know, who cares? Do you have the people behind the best product? Uh, and can you sustain that best product status? Uh, and I don't think a lot of the, the hard sciences people think about it like that. I think they think um, uh, about just building the best widget and that if we just build the best widget, the people will come, kind of fill the dreams mentality. Uh, and I don't think either one of them is purely right or wrong, but it's a blend of both those things. I had a, a professor one time tell me, that, uh, and this was a painting class, so we can get some context. So he said, listen, at the, at the end of art is science. At the end of science is art. So you talk to any, you know, physics professor, at the end of, you know, at the end of their studies, it becomes uh, faith, hope, love, and trust, art. It becomes all these kind of esoteric things after, after they study, after they've gotten all through all of, the, of their life. They get to the end, and it's like, okay, it's art. And for most artists, they get to the end of their life or the end of their studies, and it becomes biology, chemistry, and physics, and all these are hard times. So, life is really a blending of those two things. Uh, you do have a, you do have to have a good uh, prop done, checked, and, and in today's world, especially as, as transparent. 
transparent as we are, and as easy as it is with everyone having a Twitter account, um, you know, you, 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 you've got to have a good product. But just as important as having a good product is, is having good people. Yeah. And, uh, I think, you know, I think, I think thinking about people later after the product, I think is kind of a failure. Uh, <laughs> I, and conversely, thinking about people before the product is also a failure. You got to think about them on the same, in the same way. How do we think? Yeah. You know, the product to market, and how do we take our people strategy to market? Yeah, great ideas not going anywhere without great people, and you can't just put great people together without any good ideas. Um, you, you to, okay. And and you have to have that uh, good leadership as well, sort of that Venn diagram maybe of success. So, yep. Um, yep. And if anyone isn't quite under sure, uh, sure what uh, William was talking about here as far as how, how these things end up, you know, science becomes art, art becomes science. Uh, you know, just recently read Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci book, and it's a long one, but that will explain it to you. That guy was the epitome, I think, yeah. of exactly what you were talking about, of taking those mixtures and those things and, and how so many things can influence others and, and coming up with these kind of revolutionary things. Um, right. You know, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of people maybe uh, – Putting their putting their target maybe in the wrong place, and we can maybe term them as clueless entrepreneurs. Or some people having those moments of not knowing exactly which way to go. You know, um, right. you know where people have sought you out, uh, but maybe they just needed, you know, a little bit more help or a bit more uh, focusing or pointing in the right direction. Um, where do you think you've been able to kind of help them be more most the most successful? I think uh, a couple things. Um, one is, um, are you are you a solution searching for a problem? And I think this is the biggest thing. The first thing that kind of comes out really clear, quickly in a conversation is, what is the problem that you're solving? What's being displaced by the solution? Because if nothing's being displaced, then it's not a problem. <laughs> so right. what's totally right. obvious, right? <laughs> Which isn't so obvious when you're in the weeds. Uh, it's almost as like consultants say, the forest for the trees thing. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur and it's, you, you know, this is every living, waking moment, you're, you're telling your family about it, you're, you're, you're essentially getting people to really believe in what you're doing, you, you can't see a lot of what is right in front of you. Um, so the first conversation is more or less, okay, show me, show me or tell me or let me tell you what I think the problem is and where this could be a solution with being displaced. Because we've got to displace something. If we're taking a global payroll uh, play to market, fantastic. There's, there's about 15 global payroll providers out there. They all do it a little bit differently. Okay, cool. Like, that's a real problem. If you've got, you know, employees in 100 different countries, you know, just getting them paid is uh, is almost impossible. So real problem uh, and, and, you know, potentially a real solution. Uh, so start there. I think that, that's just with any entrepreneur, it's like, let's, you know, what we we don't need an exercise on how smart we are. What we need to do is solve real problems with HR, uh, recruiting, and, and leadership, and, and I would say the companies that we serve, you know, real problems that they're having with talent. Uh, so let's fix that first. And then the second thing, uh, I think that uh, it's usually a harder conversation around finance, um, and it's, you know, I view VCs and the private equity world more or less like the mob. Of the mafia, so <laughs> it, it, so <laughs> I'm not gonna make any friends on this call. However, here's the deal: at one point they want their money back, 
Right. And there's a scene in, uh, in in pretty much every mafia movie that ever made that, that you know they're going to get their money back one way or another. They just burned the restaurant down, uh, like the Goodfellas. They're going to get the money back because that's what they do. They'll take, they'll give you money, but it comes with ties. The more money it is, the more they need to. They're going to have a managing interest in your company. Uh, the least, the least money. Well, they're just putting it's roulette for them. They're putting money out on the out on the table. But they still want to return. So I think I think uh, because of the flood of money that's come into our space, I think people think that raising money is easy, and on some level, it is. However, it comes with uh, a lot of responsibility. It's, it's it's that old phrase, right? <laughs> You've got a lot of power. Well, you also have a lot of responsibility, and and any dollar amount raised, seed. You know, fam, friends and family, A round, B round, C round, doesn't matter. IPO, doesn't matter. Uh, the the stakes get higher, but but it's still the same concept. You're using other people's money. And in doing so, you have a responsibility to them to get them back their money plus, you know, interest. Yeah, and I, I think you've articulated it well. And, you know, I've jokingly said you, you have to be willing to accept their help, whether you want it or not, if you're going to take their money. Uh-huh. And you better be really good at Excel because, man, do they love spreadsheets. Hey, quick side note <laughs> on that, just real quick, and it would help a lot of entrepreneurs. Do not prepare for board meetings is, is kind of one of, my, one of my bits with entrepreneurs. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs make a lot of mistakes here where they spend days, Hours, days, weeks preparing for a board meeting, um, and here's here's a here's the failure in that. It's all of that time you can't get back, and all of that time should have been built, been been on building your company, and spending time with your team and doing things with the product, etc. So build your board meetings around a dashboard. You know what you use, and there's a great lean analytics. Uh, I can't remember the, the authors right now, but I I, I love. You know, the concept of building your business around one analytic, one that watersheds to everything else. And then and during a board meeting, just pull up the dashboard. And everybody looks at the same thing. Your board members, your independents, uh, your advisors, everybody looks at the same thing. And then you talk. Okay, how can we make this better? What can we do here? What can we do here? What about this? How about that? And that's your board meeting. But if you're preparing, you're already failing your business. And right. a lot of VCs don't get that because they've never run businesses. And so I think I think another fail there is there, there a lot of VCs aren't operators. They've never been in they, they're they're fund managers, and they're actually good at being a fund manager, but they've never run a business. So spending right. hours, days, I've seen I've seen companies do this exactly well, but I think companies actually prepare for the board meetings like two weeks. Spent two weeks preparing for a board meeting. It's like no. That's too much you can't get back. Sorry, yeah, that's, sorry, that's sorry silly. Um, on board meetings. Well, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, in actually running the business. You mentioned that. Where do you feel companies, you know, in the realm of recruiting and leadership development and organizational change, you know, where are companies kind of missing the mark? Where should we be looking to improve here in 2018? Oh, good, great question, Chris. I know you studied this. Uh, so, so you're interested. I know you have a deep interest in the subject. I think it's the candidates are changing everything right in front of us, and we don't know it. Uh, people under 30, I refuse to call them millennials. Uh, they ask different questions. I'm almost 50. Okay, so 
I grew up in the 80s, uh, and questions that I would have never asked, they routinely ask in the interview phase. So they ask, we're coming right out of the box, first interview, we've just met, you've looked at my resume, you think I'm interesting, we get on a call, and I'm going to ask you three things as an under 30. One is, what's next? Two, how are you going to train me? Three, how are you going to reward me? And these are three questions, fundamental questions that I would have never, it would have actually been arrogant uh, in the 80s or 90s to early 90s to have asked these types of questions. So recruiters can't answer those questions because they're fundamentally the three questions are about internal mobility, training and development, or leadership development, and uh, about rewards and recognition. Three things that recruiters aren't really known for knowing. Uh, these are HR topics. These are after onboarding, historically. So the candidates, are actually fundamentally changing our businesses, and most people don't realize it. The the, the ground is moving beneath their feet, and uh, and so you've got to kind of see that for what it is. It's like you can try to force the candidates to do something different, or not answer their questions. So let's let's just play with that one for a moment. Okay, don't answer their questions. Uh, okay, they're just going to move on. That's what happens if you're young and talented. And they don't, and they, they don't have an answer for your what's next question. They obviously don't have an internal mobility strategy, and I'll go elsewhere. Yeah, and it's so really fascinating because great talent. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was say I, I thought back when I was kind of entering into the workforce and just after college, and the only thing I cared about is how much were you going to pay me, right? And <laughs> if, and and if my job was cleaning a porta potty, but I could make a hundred thousand dollars, great. I will get satisfaction out of my life away from work. Um, but that has radically changed, and I think I've changed too in that way. I, I view work differently yeah. now. There's a different, you know, I, it's not just millennials. I think employees in general are starting to look at work differently. But you're absolutely right about those questions. That companies need to be able to answer those things. And that changes the relationship between HR and recruiting. So we've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years about how recruiting is like marketing or recruiting is like sales. And we need to cut off, you know, recruiting and make it more employer branding and put it over into a different era. And, you know, that's great for a blog article. I mean, maybe even for a book or a conversation uh, uh, on a stage. Problem is, is the candidates, they don't care about where you put recruiting. They care. They care. We're in a high-talent market, and they care about their questions being answered. That's right. it. And, and, again, it could be about people under 30 or it could be about just talented people in general uh, view the market. So, really, it's pushing HR, uh, recruiting further into HR. And if you read the popular media, they're thinking about how recruiting is farther away from HR. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, your customers, i.e. the candidates, they don't view the world the same way that you do. Right, so it's right. about aligning HR and recruitment and really kind of doing cross-functional training between the two so you put your recruiters in the best place that they can so they answer those questions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important how I think how we line those things up and think about those things and, to your point, how we answer those questions. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure I asked you this question, and it's a little bit of a curveball. Maybe you weren't ready for me to ask it, but I'm sure you'll handle it. Um, or I'll get a nasty email later. Either way, we'll, we'll be fine. But um, <laughs> y- you know, I noticed uh, recently. Uh, you know, you're you're very uh, prolific on uh, on Twitter and all your different social media. And there was a time when all of that stopped, and there was nothing coming out of your camp. And I re- uh, kind of learned later on you had had a 
pretty big car wreck and a big scare. And I wondered if any of that uh, uh, sort of experience has changed your perspective or where you put your focus or anything like that. Is there anything you might share that we could learn from, you know, kind of oh, your big ordeal? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Well, so I'm coming back from a recruiting conference in Austin, and I'm exiting the highway, I-35, between Austin and Dallas, at the exit where my lake house is to get gas. And uh, it's all under construction. I go down a hill, and the guy behind me didn't see my car. I didn't see him. Total accident. Nobody at fault. It really was just an accident. Uh, he hit the right end of my Prius and pushed me back up under a semi. And, you know, number of surgeries later, you know, six weeks in the hospital, just all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, I remember my wife being out at Subway getting us dinner, and my surgeon, who I was lucky enough to have a great surgeon, uh, uh, comes by. Says, "Hey, man, what's going? You know, what's going on? I can tell you're a little depressed. I can tell you're a little down. You know, I know that this is this is tough, but just talk to me." I said, "Well, Doc, my my life just changed. Like I have, I had a pretty good gig, <laughs> <laughs> traveling the world, talking to people, doing right. a bit. Like, man, I, I mean, you know, there's comics that would pay to do this type of work." And because you, you know what, you're you're right, you're right, you're right. I get it. I, you know, I understand what you're saying, and I get it. I totally understand. Here's the deal, Will. Had he might, had he been the, the driver behind you been going a mile faster, just a mile faster, either through braking or acceleration or braking or whatever, just a mile faster, you'd be dead. Like I can't put you back together, dead. I could barely put you back together as as it was. So you wow. came second from death. So, you know, you can kind of, you now have a choice. And he actually is looking right at me. He's like, you now have the choice. You can now look at it and say what you're missing. You know, how your life has all gone to hell because of what you're missing. Or you can look at it as you got a gift. Every day is now a gift. And so uh, I remember sitting up in my bed in uh, Temple, Texas. And at that very moment, I'm like, you know what? I'm getting on with my life. I'm not going to wallow in this. I'm not gonna let it get to me. I'm gonna go and be. I'm gonna go and do what I do. So wow. uh, you know, has it changed my life? Oh my God! You know, like 19 different ways. Um, you know, I still travel. I still speak. I still. I'm still like the the essence of me is still the same. I'm still very sarcastic and uh, sometimes inappropriate. You know, like none of that stuff has changed. But uh, I can tell you that uh, I do forgive. I'm a little bit more graceful and empathetic and maybe even sympathetic to other people than I was before. Because I, I never went through trauma. Never been in a car accident, never broke a bone. Did, you know, never done I got a ton of members, and all I got them all taken care of in one fell swoop. But but uh, but, but before, I, even as much as I'd like to say that I could be empathetic with someone that said that they've been through trauma, I, I couldn't because I'd never really been through trauma. Now, right. When someone, you know, just on a call, someone says, oh, my wife, you know, my wife broke her hip. I instantly can go to a place in my mind and go, man, I get it. I get it. I understand rehabilitation. You know, I understand physical therapy. I understand the occupational therapy and all the, the drugs that come with it and how to, you know, with what they do to your body and how to get off of and all that stuff. Like, that. I, I get it. I didn't have that before. So, so in a way, you know, if there... If there if, if there is a silver lining to that cloud, my you know, 12 and 8-year-old boys got to see their father go through something fairly traumatic and come out the other side. 
And, well, it's an amazing uh, story, Will, uh, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and giving us that kind of perspective. And I know I'm, ha- I'm happy to see that you're back uh, out there doing your stuff you. and you're back uh, providing content and your, and your uh, unique perspective uh, to the world. So I'm um, really glad that you've recovered and um, appreciate you sharing with us that uh, kind of very personal story here. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about you or seeing you speak or reading your blogs or whatever it may be, what's the best way to find out more? I'm I'm probably second to you. I'm pretty pretty easy to find on the Internet. You know, if you find (laughs) William Zimka, you're going to find, unfortunately, your your outlet. But, yeah, just just look on the Internet. I mean, seriously, just type in my name, and you're going to find everything about me, I promise. Yeah, I compete with this painter who's got my name, and he's got way more hits than (laughs) I do. So it's a little harder to find me, but... Anyways, all right, uh, Will, thanks so much for being on our show today. I loved having you come back, and hopefully we'll have you come back again and give us an update on everything you're doing. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Congratulations on your book, my friend. All right, appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and we're right back with my next guest, Ron Mester. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Hey, thank you for uh, sticking with us here as we bring in our my uh, second guest today. Uh, don't forget, you can find us um, on iTunes or iHeartRadio. Listen to us there. You can also go to TownTalkRadio.com and pull up episodes. Uh, pretty much all kinds of different places you can go and. I want to thank uh, William Tinkup for joining us, and also um, I mentioned my book, The Power of Company Culture, which is coming out here at the end of February 2018. You can find it wherever you buy books, Amazon or wherever you may go. Uh, you can find a copy there, but love to have you check it out and send me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Uh, appreciate uh, everyone's thoughts and uh, uh, feedback. So my next guest is Ron Mester, the CEO of uh, Brightfield Strategies. Uh, let's go ahead and bring him in. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. I want you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what we should know about you, and, of course, what you guys do over there at uh, Brightfield Strategies. Sure. I I think uh, from a professional standpoint, I'll start by saying I love to grow companies. And I think I love that because it means I'm helping address important client challenges and, at the same time, figuring out how to get a group of people all focused on a common set of goals. And, and ultimately, that, my career has been focused on people issues. I think the toughest and most uh, important challenges, the most satisfying ones to address are people-related. And so I love uh, being part of companies that help other companies build competitive advantage through people. Surprisingly, I, 
enormous numbers of companies are just very ill-informed in terms of making people decisions, uh, even though they spend probably more money and effort designing and managing their workforce than on anything else. And so one way or another, and most of my jobs, most of my companies that I've worked in, uh, I've been involved in providing information or analysis that helps people make, helps companies make those kinds of people decisions. And, uh, and I'll just throw in, I like acapella singing and learning about American history. But those have nothing to do with the first one. Maybe I could tell you a little bit about Brightfield. Yeah, uh, please. Brightfield Strategy. Brightfield Strategies is a workforce analytics and consulting company, and we make heroes out of HR and procurement professionals. We, we enable our clients to figure out the right number, type, and mix of workers that they need, how to get them fast and at the right cost. We created the world's most advanced and accurate uh, artificial intelligence-driven workforce analytics platform and one that uses real market data. And when we combine that with the consulting expertise we've developed over the last 11 years, working closely with the Global 2000, it's a very, very unique combination. And maybe one of the most unique things that we do is that we cover, both with our consulting and analytics work, both the employee and the non-employee labor uh, workforce. And that's critical in today's working world. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Um, and uh, I know one of the things that you've uh, sort of been known for in the talent industry is that you've often challenged a long-held view kind of about HR. So what are some of the things that you feel should be challenged, you know, about, about how we think about HR? You know, I think uh, HR needs to change in many ways. But let me, let me highlight a couple of things that, that come to mind right off the bat. <clears throat> First of all, uh, one of the long-held beliefs about HR is that HR is about employees. And no, HR should be talent-focused, not employee-focused. For many large companies today, Chris, 20 to 50% of the talent that's working on their behalf are non-employees. That would be people who are temps or independent contractors or working for your company through a professional service or some sort of outsource service or, believe it or not, Customers who volunteer their time to do work for you, uh, robots. I mean, there are so many different ways uh, that uh, talent is used on behalf of a company. And it makes no sense whatsoever for HR to only focus on the 50 to 80% that are employees. Uh, getting the right talent in the door matters, employees and non-employees. Engaging all the talent matters, employees and non-employees. I think that's huge, and I've spent uh, most of my career bouncing back and forth looking at both employee and non-employee issues, and it's still astonishing to me the extent to which HR ignores a huge chunk of the talent equation. So that's, uh, that's one thing. And the second is this notion that HR is for people people, and uh, that's great. Uh, you know, people who work well with others uh, and who understand how others tick are a tremendous asset, and having them as HR professionals is good. But HR is for scientists, too, and specifically data scientists. And I think for a long time, uh, HR has been largely focused on just trying to figure out what makes people tick and then using that to figure out what to do. I'd sort of call that inside-out analysis. And it's helpful, but it's not enough today. We also need outside-in data analytics. We need to study, like a scientist would, people's actual behaviors, 
the facts about those behaviors and also how companies behave or the transactions that they take part in with people and then how we can use all that data to understand how to improve the quality of the people, the speed that we get them, um, the cost uh, in terms of paying them and developing them and so on, and the risk associated with them. And so uh, that really needs to be an added part to how HR thinks about itself. So those are a couple of big ones that are on my mind a lot, uh, but there are others. Yeah, and I love you kind of bringing up, uh, you know, science really is the, the broader term here. And, um, you know, it's something that I've been talking about a while, not necessarily as much the data part, but um, I mean, that's part of it. But the um, really, I've been asking HR people to talk, think about cognitive biases. And there's so much data. There's so many studies. There's so much science already proven and in the books that is there for people to take advantage of about how people get tripped up and what we do to, you know, when we're asking people to do something and we're trying to get them to, to get to another level, how how poorly <laughs> of a job we often do as leaders or as managers in delivering that information or trying to get people, uh, um, you know, on board. We use that uh, metaphor all the time of everyone rowing the same direction. And not, very often it's we're not rowing the same direction because we've not asked everyone properly to row the right direction or giving them what they need to to figure that part out and there is so much science out there already to really help us so it uh, sounds like we need a, a chief science officer maybe uh, plucked into to hr or something as well that might really be helpful to large organizations uh, you know uh, many functions one function after another in companies have been turning to science and specifically data science uh, to help make better decisions. And HR is one of the last to get there, and that's crazy. It's, it's, it's one of the most, in my opinion, perhaps should be the most important and impactful function. It's not today in most companies, uh, but it should be. And, uh, and so it's time. It's high time. It's past time uh, to, to bring that, uh, that data science into HR. And do you think that that is... Uh, due to the types of people that tend to be drawn into HR or our structures, or do you think it's financial? Because I tend to lean towards the financial component because I see very often that HR is a cost. And so companies often put as little as that they can in there to just cover the cost in which they anticipate, as opposed to, hey, let's go study how our best salespeople work, because that's revenue, right? We can use data and science to understand you know, how to improve that process because that's going to make us more money as opposed to it's going to save us money or get us better talent. It's a, it's a softer sort of win on the financial side. So uh, where do you think that kind of fits in what, as far as those different factors? Well, it's an interesting point uh, that you make, Chris, and I do think that some companies think that way. But if you take a, a little bit of a step back from it, of course, that's crazy. I'll tell you why it's crazy. It's not just a cost. It's the cost. For most right. large companies, uh, people costs are not just sort of one of the largest cost centers. It's often 50% or more of all the costs in the company. We're talking billions of dollars a year. And not only that, but getting it wrong, uh, designing the wrong workforce, paying people the wrong way, etc. cetera, uh, we know that it, 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 the costs involved are massive. Uh, and so modest changes, modest 
changes and improvements in how you manage your people, or even if you only focus on cost. In our consulting work, we are often asked to, to specifically look at cost. It's not the only thing we do. We look at many things, but we're often asked to specifically look at cost. Can we spend less and get the same quality people? Can we spend uh, less and bring people in faster? And the answer is often yes, and it's amazing how uh, modest investment in those kind of data analytics can, can yield a huge return, huge, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in many right. cases. Well, you know, kind of given our conversation and some of the things that you're actively dealing with, what are some of the things that you think should really be on HR executives' minds, you know, here this year? What, what, what are some of the most important topics or things that they're not thinking about? Right. You know, uh, I think I think most HR functions have only reacted sort of incrementally or uh, reactively to the changing business and work environments. And what I'd love to see HR executives think more about today is how to to fundamentally rethink the entire function. So. Just by way of example, I think we're, we're familiar. We're, many of us are familiar with, uh, and probably all of your listeners, uh, familiar with the kinds of changes that are happening in the business environment and the working environment. These aren't just little tweaks. These are fundamental sea changes. For example, the business environment uh, has gone over the last 30 years from a you know largely stable environment to a volatile department. Uh, uh, environment in almost every company, in almost every industry, where it's gone from a place where confidentiality was the rule of the day to transparency is becoming the rule of the day. Massive implications for both of those things in terms of what kinds of people, how you hire them, how you train them, how you work with them, how you pay them, everything. We've gone from standardization to mass customization. All of those things just in our business environment have huge implications for an HR's ability to be, to perform well. Similarly, in the working environment, we've gone from a place where employees were largely dependent to becoming really independent talent. You know, uh, 30, 40 years ago, even 10 or 20 years ago, employees had to depend on companies for tools and equipment and software and colleagues and office space and all kinds of things in order to just get their work done. But today, not in every case, but in many cases, they don't have that kind of dependency in order to do great work. We've gone from clustered workers to distributed, from work-life balance to work-life integration. All of these are things that right now what's happening is you see HR executives putting out new policies, tweaking processes to address things that are, it's, it's, like, it's like going from the horse to a car and just worrying about, you know, whether uh, what happens when you if you fall out of the vehicle, what do you do when you get hurt? Well, it's a whole different ballgame. You're not likely to fall out. If you do, you're likely to be killed. It's just a completely different uh, ballgame. And so I'd really like to see uh, HR executives uh, think very, very differently about the department. So just by, um, by way of example, uh, almost every large company HR department is organized around a pretty standard set of disciplines like recruiting and training and compensation, labor relations. There's about 20 of them that large companies have. But maybe those are the wrong ways to focus the development of HR expertise. Maybe instead of those kinds of disciplines, HR departments should be organized around what 
types of employee or employees or non-employees, what types of uh, labor they're trying to attract and retain, or around what kinds of functions they're trying to get done. Very different way of thinking about uh, HR expertise, just as one example. And I know sort of in, in that focus, I know uh, sort of one of the things that looking in your background and things you've put out there, sort of put out this idea about uh, HR really looking to embrace this concept of age of talent rather than simple, simply focusing on just their employees. And I know we've, we've kind of hit this in different directions here already today, but maybe could you talk a bit more specifically or in depth um, on what you think the difference is in really looking at an age of talent versus that, you know, very specific focus on, on employees. The, the, the key words I focus on there is talent versus employees. And talent is a broader term uh, that encompasses employees and non-employees. As, as I mentioned before, like temporaries and independent contractors and people who provide you professional services and so on. And, I think there are still some people out there who, who, who may be thinking, well, it, it doesn't really matter that much because, you know, your employees do mission-critical work and non-employees don't. Except if you look in most large companies today, it's absolutely not the case. There are lots of employees who do non-mission-critical work, and there are lots of non-employees, temps and independent contractors. And the best examples of this typically are uh, technical workers, um, who are doing extremely mission critical. In fact, in some cases, you can't even hire employees to do that work. You can only get that talent if you're willing to work with independent contractors, just as an example. And so, but yet you see the craziest things going on. So you don't, in recruitment, you don't, you'll see recruiting departments, there's work to be done. It's an automatic reaction that we're going to hire an employee. But shouldn't the question be, uh, where can we get the best talent at the right cost and at the speed that we need? Uh, and if that's an employee, great. But if it's maybe it's not. Maybe it's an independent contractor. Maybe it's a temp. Maybe it's an outsourced service of some kind. How do you ask? Make how do you make sure that you're asking that question each time so that you build the right workforce? Similarly, I been in companies where I've walked into a room and there are 20 software developers sitting in a room and eight of them are independent contractors and 12 of them are employees and they're all working together on one project. And some of those independent contractors have been there for three, six, sometimes 12 or 15 months. And then all of a sudden there's some sort of a company meeting or the supervisor or the manager of that group wants to get people together, and 12 stand up and 8 stay seated. Or a memo comes out about what's critical for the company, and 12 get the memo and 8 don't. And, you know, and when it's time to celebrate birthdays, 12 go and 8 don't. Whatever the case may be, why is it a good idea to have 12 out of the 20, to have 60% of the people motivated and engaged, and 8 of them treated like robots and not motivated and engaged? It makes no sense. And yet, companies do that all the time. So thinking about the age of talent versus employees um, should put HR into a mindset of looking at the whole workforce. Because it's not the non-employee portion, I guarantee you, in every Global 2000 company, is a very substantial portion of that workforce. It's not a little tiny corner. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, a lot of that gets into their approach. It gets into how they measure things. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about metrics and analytics here. And where do you think HR really needs to be focusing in on or utilizing to really measure their overall success uh, in, in their department? We talked a little bit about in the beginning about using those metrics um, as a strategy or in science as a strategy, but how do they really connect the dots to some of those things to, you know, strategy uh, overall for the company? Well, uh, as, as obvious as it sounds, the, um, the most important thing is to ask the CEO how, how he or she measures the success of their overall company in the next six months, 12 months, and 24 months. Uh, it's remarkable to me how often that's unclear. If you don't know, how uh, the CEO is measuring success or the board is measuring success uh, for the whole company, not just for what HR is doing, then you can't tie in uh, what you're doing in HR to that. So that's, that's the first thing. And, uh, and the second, then, is to develop a workforce plan uh, that is going to facilitate the CEO achieving those metrics. And that workforce plan should address things like not only how many, but what type of workers. What's the mix needed? Again, between employees and non-employees is one way of thinking about it. There are many others, geographic mix and so on, that need to be addressed. How fast do they need to get in and at what cost? Cost is often asked in a, in, in a very, in a way that's not tied to the overall strategy. Uh, and then you can pick measures, measures on what to track. And, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, those are going to be focused on some kind of mix of quality, speed, cost, and risk related to the people that you're uh, bringing in and keeping uh, as part of your workforce. And I think, to be fair, that most well-run HR departments have a pretty good list of those metrics. But they run into, you know, a couple of fundamental problems. The most important one, I think, is that almost all the data uh, that companies are using for these metrics are very unreliable. And they usually know it. And the response I usually get is, I know, it's dirty data, it's not good, it's not accurate, but it's the best we can get, so we'll use it. And using wrong data can be disastrous. Uh, it just sets you down the entirely wrong course. It's like saying, I know my map is upside down, but I'll go the wrong direction anyway. Why would you do that? <laughs> right. It makes no sense. we got to right? sail so, somewhere, so let's just get out the wrong map, right, or a broken sextant or whatever it is, right? I, I get it. And so often that people bring out the wrong data and then they interpret it wrong. And I think that's really why we need that, to your point, that some grounding in science, we need that help there, um, you know, approaching things correctly. Um, you know, I read a really interesting book about math and I sort of talked about, um, you know, all the amazing ways that math can help and also the amazing ways that people completely get it wrong and how it screws everything yeah. up as well if you don't understand how you're interpreting data and how you're, you're, you're looking at something. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a, a really big – something that HR people and organizations in general should really be looking at their focus and making sure that they are uh, approaching it correctly. Um, you know, one you of the know, things that we've uh, added this year to the show, it's a kind of a new question that we've been getting some fun answers to, and I'm hoping you have one for us, is is there a gadget or an app or a thing or something you've added to your life you know, recently that uh, you're really enjoying or is making your life better or your work more impactful or anything like that? There, There is, uh, actually. Um, I started a, about two months ago, I started using this a little device called a Remarkable, Remarkable, 
Um, and uh, it just came out. I think it's a Norwegian product, and it's <laughs> it's a funny uh, thing to think about. It's not a conventional tablet. It's specifically designed for people like me who love taking notes on paper but don't love the hassle of sorting through all of their paper notes. Uh, and so when I'm on calls, when I'm in meetings, uh, I'm, I can't type fast enough to, to take proper notes, but I can scribble lots of notes on paper. But it was the bane of my existence to keep track of all that stuff. But uh, the remarkable keeps it all you, the, the writing on it is literally feels like you're writing on a piece of paper. So it has the feel of it. And yet you can keep it all organized in files like computer, and it's all saved in the cloud, so your notes are always with you. And it's essentially wiped paper off my desk completely, and yet I still get all the benefits I had before. So I sound like a commercial for it, but I've been loving it. It's been a great, great gadget. So this is the Remarkable, and is I'm, I sort of immediately went on to Amazon as you were talking and tried to tried to find There's lots of different ones on there, but... Um, uh, looks only, like a, the, the, I think you have to order it through the company still. They just okay. released the product in November, December. I, if I'm remembering correctly, it's Remarkable.com, so I don't think it's a hard uh, site. But, um, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting thing. Uh, getting paper off my desk would be a fantastic thing. So um, I'm, I'm actually reading the book Work Clean, which is completely changing my life and costing me a lot of money and reorganizing everything. Uh, so I cannot be so uh, disorganized. Uh, is there a book that you're reading or that you often suggest people check out? Well, I <laughs> I told you at the beginning that one of the things I love is learning about American history. So it's probably not so helpful from a uh, work standpoint. But I just uh, yesterday finished a book on uh, the biography of Ulysses Grant by Ron Chernow. Uh, you have to love history to, to read this book because it's a long book. But it's extraordinary. And I will say, though, it did, it did, as I was reading the book, one of the things that really caught my eye, besides the just the uh, tremendous learning that I got from uh, understanding that time period better, but Ulysses S. Grant himself is a really interesting example of how to use and work with people and build teams well and not well. When he was a general in the Civil War, he was remarkable at picking out the right other generals and staff members to surround himself with. And many historians think it's a big part of what allowed him to win the war. Uh, and when he was president, he was not very good at picking out the right cabinet members and others to be on his team. And it, it caused him a lot of, uh, it, at a minimum, it slowed him down. It also caused him a lot of grief during his uh, two terms as president. So same person. But in one case, extremely competent at picking out the right kinds of people to be on his team. And in another case, he probably should have asked for more advice on how right. to pick people for his team. Good lesson. We're not yeah. always good at something across every sort of field that we might be in. Sometimes we need help. Yeah, it's like great players aren't great coaches, and there's lots of examples out there. Uh, I know I was really surprised to find out kind of how bad uh, Abraham Lincoln was at a lot of that. Uh, despite his accomplishments, how bad he was at managing some people in teams. and um, But anyways, um, really appreciate you being on the show today, Ron. Uh, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? Uh, feel free to email me at rmester at brightfieldstrategies.com or call me at 917-338-6686 anytime. I love talking to people. 
about what's happening in their company, the challenges they're facing, the ideas they've had, uh, or just reach out to Brightfield Strategies. Uh, we're at brightfieldstrategies.com, and um, uh, you can find me that way. But uh, okay. I would welcome hearing from any of your listeners. Fantastic. Appreciate you being on the show today. Love to have you come back. we continue the conversation. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Next week, I'll be joined by uh, Jason uh, Leverant, the COO at AtWork Group. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 